0: and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell, and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today, we're coming to you from the Royal Bank of Canada's offices in the City of London. We're speaking to LBS alumni, Eduardo Flamini Silva. Director of Renewables at RBC and formerly of HSBC and EDP Energia de Brazil. Eduardo is a highly experienced banker with a global perspective on the energy transition. Eduardo offers deep insights into how both capital and M&A markets are evolving in Europe, in his home of Brazil, in the US and in Canada. Eduardo also offers his views on the role that finance plays in the energy transition and how this can be broadened over time. This conversation provides a roadmap to navigate the ever-changing renewable energy finance markets, and it's one you just won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you, and enjoy the conversation. Eduardo, thank you so much for inviting me here into your wonderful offices in the, the City of London. It's uh, looking really looking forward to our conversation.
1: My pleasure to be invited to speak with you, Chris. Wonderful.
0: Uh, well, you are Brazilian by background. Yeah. And uh, would you like to give a little bit of uh, a journey, um, a, st- a story of your journey from Brazil as an engineer to investment banking in the City of London? <laughs> How much time do we have?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a quite unconventional uh, path, I would say. and. Um, When I started choosing what to do in life, right, I I, I had people guiding me and and the background was such that you needed to become a doctor, lawyer, or engineer to succeed in life. I was good in maths, went to engineering, and actually liked engineering school very much, that was a good choice, and I would be happy just being an engineer for life, but you know, you make decisions based on the information you have. Last year of university, got um, a number of consulting firms coming to, to recruit on campus. And I was fascinated by that type of career, like you travel, be in front of clients, discussing about their major strategic issues. And I said, okay, I'll have a go at that. I mean, prior to that point, I had no idea that business even existed. So I joined, I joined consulting, much like that, was um, enjoying a career, but you know, uh, in consulting, it's part of a career path to do your MBA, and I was also very excited to go abroad, which would be my first time. And uh, I pursued an MBA, ended up in London at LBS. And then again, enlightenment comes. And I start to discover a range of other careers that actually, by that point, I had heard about, but was not much into. And um, I would say banking felt like a good balance at that point between, you know, the client access that I much liked, but the analytical strength that came from my engineering background. And I said, okay, I'll have a go at that. And uh luckily, George told it well. a very difficult year for recruiting in banking. I got a very good offer to start investment banking. And I took it. The rest is history. Ten years and here I am.
0: Investment banking as we as we both know uh, covers an awful lot of grounds. Like you can really be involved in any part of society or any part of industry or business for investment banking. But you've ended up in the energy sector particularly as a director of renewables um can you tell us about your journey towards like that particular specialism
1: i actually started and i just mentioned i got um, a very good offer in investment banking that was actually to cover the oil and gas industry which i took not before a lot of reflection because um, you know in brazil prior in consulting i did work in energy but mainly utilities and like with some Exposure to green energies and oil and gas would be a change from that but I took advice from people and uh, I was told oil and gas is gonna be a great job Have an industry with like great geopolitical exposure Commodities everything you do is global large-scale And I thought it was very interesting right because for my background I just mentioned that I came from Brazil Moving to London was my first move abroad abroad. I thought I thought working oil and gas would be a way to further expand my horizons, if that makes sense, which was true. And it was a good, actually, run um, advising oil and gas clients. And actually, what brought me in the end from there to where I am now, I think possibly to surprise you, but is that some of my clients started asking questions about, have you heard about hydrogen, Eduardo? Have you heard about carbon capture and storage? And obviously the answer initially was no. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, right? But you know, if you're working with clients, you always need to preempt what's happening. right? When you see the first signs of a wave or tsunami as it was for energy transition, you need to be ahead. So, I started to respond to those questions by actually educating myself. And that resulted in me being much more proactive in bringing some of these topics, initially to the oil and gas clients, right? And covering areas that would be much relevant to them electric vehicle charging points, for example. And that credentialized me to actually do more and more. It got to a point where I was so excited by doing energy transition. And of course, you are in the part of the economy that has the highest tailwinds and you, you, you want to do more of that, right? So, I got to a point where I said, okay, I don't want to be the renewable energy, energy transition specialist these guys, as an oil and gas banker, or vice versa, I want to go full on. Right. And that's how I ended up here. I was quite keen then to move on to a platform that would allow me to work 100% on energy transition and a good platform for a good track record with clients, and that was RBC. Mm-hmm. That's how I ended up here. Right, right. So it
0: seemed to be. Rather than a kind of a coming-to-Damascus moment <laughs> where there was just a, a kind of a, a, a light went off and decided, oh, I must do renewables, it was kind of a slow but sure build-up of knowledge and information where you, you then you hit a point and said, well, this, this fits with me philosophically and it fits with me economically. Uh, you know, it can, be, it, it can be the best of both worlds. Is that, that a fair is it, summary?
1: It, <clears throat> it is. It's, it's incredible how we can only act upon what we have in front of us, right? And it's hard for you to have the whole set of information to make them a proper informed decision based on all the facts. And the informations I've made on the course of my life, I think were based on the fact I had in front of me at the time. But I'm confident the end result was exactly what I would have targeted if from the very very beginning I had all the options and said well, what do you want to do, so I feel lucky in that way. I think all the decisions like nudged me a bit towards like the end result. Okay,
0: um, and just kind of spending a, just a little more moment one more moment on your kind of your, your kind of philosophy on this. Uh, you put out a really interesting uh, quote on LinkedIn in the feed in the run up to COP twenty six. Where you you asked, um, are we? Are we living the end of capitalism as we know it? The models that we have right now are no longer working. Um, are we finally getting to the age of uh, utilitarianism? Would you care to um, you know, tell us what, what you meant by that and what your, what
1: your, your,
0: your vision of, um, you know, of a utilitarian future might be? I, I, I
1: would say what do we take into account in our decision-making, right? I would say in a pure capitalist mindset, that is, let's run an NPV. Let's see what is the utility I get in making a decision. And I, I, I worry about what I get. And much less about what others get. Unless that impact on others has a side effect on me, right? Now we're moving to a point where in our decision-making as individuals, as society, as corporations, we look at impacts that are not measurable and sometimes impacts that are completely non-financial. So if I take decisions today that will only impact generations like two, three, four decades in the future, this this will not be captured in any of our models. Mm -hmm. But people are making decisions today taking into account these factors on a qualitative basis sometimes, but they are. So when you look into capitalism, corporate finance, sometimes our models are limited because we run based on the ways we've always run. I think it's about time for us to potentially, and it's very easier to say and talk, very hard to implement, but to look into ways of incorporating some of these, I would say, factors people already take into account in their decision making into our models. Okay. And that's more or less what I try to mean. So, if I run, for example, a comparison across a number of companies, some good citizens and some less so, if all of them has, have the same bottom line, surely our clients or investors still choose the good citizens versus the bad ones, despite the fact the models would give the same result. So, isn't it The case that we should change our models, right, so that they can be better reflecting the ways we make decisions. And that's more or less what I've started to cover.
0: Where do you see the role of ESG in uh, utilitarianism? (laughs)
1: Um, Very good question. And and it's core to it, right? Because um, I would say the reason the whole debate on should we care only about us or care about others. I think start more or less at the same time where, when society started to worry about what happens if we destroy Earth. So it's possibly not impact us, but definitely our children, most certainly our grandchildren. And I, I, again, it's very philosophical, but my belief is it, it's much interlinked. The needs you have to decarbonize with that thought that actually, when I decide what I eat, I, I, I actually need to be thinking about Earth even though I'm paying a premium for organic food, or if I make an investment, actually, I may need to sacrifice some of cash flows to actually support a company that in future will enable the future of my grandchildren, right? So, I think it's all very much interlinked. So, ESG is core. ESG, I see it as a framework, and I see ESG as a result of a trend that was already happening, which is, People seeing the catastrophic climate events, seeing a need to act, and then industry and society players acting or reacting uh, by creating frameworks, and ESG is a framework. So it's all much interlinked, I think, to your question. Okay.
0: Well, okay. So moving on a little bit into your 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 real area of uh, of expertise, uh, kind of capital markets, m a Uh, I just think it's fair to say 22 and the early part of 23 have been (laughs) crazy times for (laughs) for the markets. Uh, Put mildly. (laughs) uh, Um, What do you, just in very kind of broad terms, uh, what's what's your view on the macro outlook for, um, for renewables, for the renewable energy sector?
1: I'm very positive about renewables. And I think, if anything, I would say the hiccup in 2022 will be... Supportive of the long term trend of transformation to renewables. If you step back and think about policy making or energy policy making, so people usually talk about the triangle of like energy security, energy competitiveness, and sustainability. And sometimes the three areas of this triangle get in conflict with each other. So if you think very long term, um, what will be the alternative, the solution that policymakers will need to aim at to actually solve all these problems of the triangle, right? And the answer is, is, is only once renewable energy. I don't see any alternative, right? Because renewable energy, you leverage on resources that are everywhere. If you think about, for example, geothermal, even more so, widespread. So you deliver to energy security, or largely so. Then um, you have energy that's generated at very low marginal price, marginal cost. So you deliver then to the point of like, affordability and of course, clearly it's sustainable. So, in terms of long-term policy making, the urge now to focus on energy security means actually, it makes sense to invest long-term on renewables. That's going to be what's going to solve the big problem. All the near-term fixes you are doing here is just medicine to address the symptoms of the problems, right? So, I think in the long-term and taking this policy perspective to account, there is no change, right? Now, a lot of the work I do is uh, with the broader, um, I would say, green ecosystem. And that will cover, of course, renewable energies, but uh, also new technologies such as hydrogen, which is not even that new anymore, uh, carbon capture storage, or infrastructure for EV charging, or sustainable aviation fuels the time horizon of these companies or people investing in these businesses is just so long-term. So, they wouldn't make investment decisions based necessarily on what happened in 2022, and for that matter what will happen in the next three, four years It's a long-term perspective. So, um, I would say day-to-day, what I see actually uh, is an increase and an improvement in sentiment, and between us, I don't remember being ever that busy <laughs> with clients. <laughs> that's good to hear. It's good to hear.
0: And on the M&A side, are you noticing um, a lot of activity? Is, do, do you see the future of renewables as being with larger companies? Is scale going to be increasingly important? So, and is that driving uh, the M&A markets? Or is m and slightly quiet?
1: That, that's an interesting question, right? And, and I think 2022 creates a lot of volatility, and I think the basic concept here is volatility isn't good for m because it it widens the the bridge between the price buyers are willing to pay and the price sellers are willing to accept. so that's the basics behind it, right? But if you then insulate this macro trend into my universe here, then what happens is firstly, we have a large scale global Rollout of uh, renewables capacity, so most of players, including the large ones, they already have in-house a very large pipeline of projects they're developing, right? And I think the question then for them is, well, does it really make sense to go and consolidate now when I have myself in-house like such a large pipeline of projects? And I think because we're in such a high-growth environment for renewable energy then the case for m anyways is a different case. It's not a case of consolidation yet. It's a case of increasing the ability of developing that pipeline. And that may mean acquiring a smaller company that brings a critical capability. It may mean acquiring a company that then gives access to a different geography. What actually has happened uh, is a deconsolidation in a sense, if you can define that. Uh, We worked, for example, on a transaction in which we saw BASF, for example, acquiring a very large wind farm. So, let's say a chemicals company acquiring a wind farm, well, from a utility. (laughs) So... When you see m and that I was a that totally makes sense, right? And, and and of course like industrial players and big emitters want to have access to 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 green electrons, which would be like the source of the future. Um so when you see what M&A is doing now in a sense, is actually okay, perhaps even increase the universe of investors in the wide uh, uh renewables framework. And then seeing like through MA. Of course, industrial players getting into the renewables game, but those oil and gas companies and private equity. So, in a sense, we're in that process of like high growth, deconsolidation, and maybe in future when we have like plenty of renewables capacity, then there will be a case for efficiency, and that is why you see the consolidation happening, but I think that's going to be very far from now.
0: OK, so you said the three major players then are um, industrials who are trying to um, clean up their own energy for, for, their, own, for, their, own, for their own uses, um, oil and gas companies who are in the energy business, so it, does, so it makes sense, and private equity who were there just to, to, to try and make...
1: The three unconventional players, of course, the utilities are a lead in the space as well. But when I mention deconsolidation, then what I mean is there are players that you would not think at first would be investing heavily in this space, but you see loads of activity coming from this. these buckets of money. Sure. Well, from my
0: um, point of view, as someone who is more involved in the, other, the development side of it, I don't see it as a consolidated market. I see it as a very fragmented market. I see it as yeah. as, as hundreds and hundreds and thousands of of smaller players running around, uh, Each of them kind of developing their, their own projects, their own little little pockets of projects, and very few really big players out there. Uh, so, like we develop some projects, and then like it might be bought by Microsoft. There is space
1: for everyone, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because we need everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, for sure. It, it's a ma- it's a major issue. We do we do need that for sure. Just going back a little bit uh, to what you were saying about the the uncertainties in the market and the you know the, the the gap between valuations for, for buyers and sellers um, there's there, you know certainly the case with uh, with high inflation with uh, with high yeah. in, with high interest rates with higher uncertainty like there's that that does hamper um, the m a market but on the other hand you 've got uh, a, a big drive towards you know green energy and decarbonization but th- there's an inherent inherent conflict between them. How do you see that that conflict is playing out? is the decarbonization winning and or is the you know, the concerns about, well, how am I supposed to build a large infrastructure project if I'm paying interest rates, which are three times the amount that would have been, would have been there there 18 months ago?
1: Well, um, 100% decarbonization is winning. I think there are a number of factors behind this. I would say the compression of multiples you, you, you see uh, in listed equities is a result of, of course, short-term cycles, and we, we are now at the bottom of the cycle. But also, if you think about developed markets, it's linked to, to growth of the economy. So, when you look at multiple complex, compression, that's a result of investors expecting lower growth on the average stock market, or the average set of investable assets. Now, within again the universe of renewable energy and energy transition, what you see actually is a very high growth universe of companies and that's actually driving very high multiples. And talking about the multiples is actually even funny in a sense, because how do we even find multiples for companies that actually pre-break even, sometimes pre-revenue, right? You have these super large projects like in the order of billions, super valuable capabilities inside certain companies that never generate any revenue, and these are of course uh, companies that will succeed, right? that will have very high multiples, but honestly should even be talking about multiples, right? So uh, actually to the core of your question, I I, I would say um, decarbonization um, will certainly win. The long-term trend is like high growth for this universe just define. It's a industry that will require trillions of dollars of investment. This investment will come. And honestly, when I talk with my clients and investors, I would say the appetite for investment is very high, and when we look at some of the deals we've been running, I would say valuations will remain robust.
0: So um, moving on slightly, um, we into kind of new, another area, which is kind of yeah, macro environments and um, changes in kind of in, in in the world, and how that how that's impacted on uh, on your sector. Uh, clearly, one of the big you know, major major events that kind of transforms the thinking around energy happened last year was uh, was russia 's uh, invasion of Ukraine A lot of the conversation that 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 came out of that um, was centered around you know should we reopen coal should we be building uh new new pipelines it was It was very much kind of thinking, well, how do we compensate for the lack of uh, lack of gas we're, we're getting we're getting from russia um how do you see that conversation has evolved? Do you think that it's, it's ultimately uh, been kind of a positive or a negative for, for, for renewable? How how's it framed uh, the renewable sector?
1: Well, I'll come back to that analogy, right? Um, we, never, we have a problem that we need to fix, right? And this problem is caused some symptoms. And I think the symptom in, in the near term is energy security, and there is a big focus on that. But the long-term solution... Is healing the problem, which is bringing home some of production of the production or energy and generation capacity, and doing so by enhancing renewables. So, um, what I would say is, the war has terrible short-term effects, and that is across energy security and the price of energy. But that opened eyes. And European policymakers realized that actually there were mistakes done over the course of decades in actually how they set up the infrastructure to deliver energy to this continent. I think this is good news because uh, this now is enabling them to actually act. Perhaps, especially in Europe, there's often a lot of inertia and a lot of resistance to, to big, like quick moves, and that's an important trigger, but perhaps that was the the trigger we needed. Mm. And um, I feel a bigger acceleration, and we talk of clients, we talk of policymakers, and sentiment has changed in a very good way towards accelerating investment, enabling investment, and reducing a bit bit of the, the red tape. And all of this is very positive in the long run. Now, we have a a problem in the next six months as well. And one could say, okay, we're abandoning all the long-term plans because now we need to focus fully on actually get our homes heated and let's go on coal. But very fortunately, actually, my impression is that we're doing both. We're actually focusing on actually getting our homes heated by burning coal, which is bad, but that makes us remember that Actually, I'm doing that, I'm reducing my carbon stock, and then I need to, then to accelerate on the other side, then to guarantee my future. So, I don't think this, call it uh, lower resource base caused by the high energy price has impacted investment in energy. Governments have, have been moving money from elsewhere. Pr- the private sector has remained like focused, and I think even more so, possibly even investing more, looking at investing more. So, I think, if there is anything that can come out of this war that's positive, perhaps is an acceleration, particularly in Europe, to the trend of energy transition.
0: There's an awful lot of um, benefits being given, a lot of support being given to the US renewable energy industry. Instead of us sitting back and complaining about it, we should try and do something similar ourselves and try and support that industry in Europe. Um, but what impact do you see of, of IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, overseas?
1: Super interesting question and I think first of all um, the IRA should be lauded because it's a bold initiative in the right direction and it's not only about providing monetary support but it's about simplicity as well. It's beautiful how simple the provisions are. Even a banker could understand by reading like in five minutes what what benefits uh, Investors would have in actually targeting certain areas of energy transition. And uh, I think that was a wake up call in Europe. And you know, I think first reaction is panicking. And several, several of my clients, European clients, start asking questions about investing in the US, which makes total sense, right? You have a regulatory environment that is simple, clear, and welcoming you versus an environment that is... More difficult. Way more difficult, complex. With policymakers with the right intentions, but struggling to find like, an agreeable framework. So it does have a side effect in, in, on Europe. Now, I think it's a positive one, because Europe and the EU, it's an, a work-in-progress system. And they're trying to find, from battling crisis to crisis the way they can best function and I'm, I'm a big believer in that model in the EU. But again, that may be the next crisis that will nudge them to actually operate in a better way. They've just announced um, a Green Deal industrial plan which is a reaction to the IRA and shows a very quick reaction in a sense for EU standards where they say we are going to reduce bureaucracy we are going to create a European fund to be announced by the summer to help investing, to help clients or, or, or investors investing in renewable energy in the continent. Um, Ursula von der Leyen made specific reference to the RRA when making that announcement, so it was a clear reaction to that plan. But it was a good reaction. Of course, there was the initial panic and complaints, but now what they're providing is like, a similar set of incentives for people actually to stay in the continent. And I think that's great. That's the good race. And um, I think that will much incentivize investment. I'm positive that other comp- countries will follow suit. And that actually will be a big enabler for decarbonization. In Europe in particular, if that results in a reduction of barriers, for example, for permitting, that's already a rather big win, right? And um, I'm a believer that I think Europe. Will remain competitive, and if anything, the RRA will accelerate that process. So, um, yes, very good step in the right direction. So, great potential for wind energy in Canada, in particular, great potential for geothermal, and um, all the areas that I described earlier that belong, not necessarily directly in the renewable energy, but like belong to the wider green ecosystem. So. Immense potential for, for hydrogen, even if perhaps big far bit farther in the future.
0: Yeah, you seem really positive on hydrogen. <laughs> I am. Is that yeah? yeah. Would you like to, to it's just there's well, obviously there's an awful lot of skepticism around it, a huge amount of skepticism around it. Like the, it, it was seen as the next big thing for, for a lot of years, and then um, certainly over the last kind of year, eighteen months, I've seen the tide re- really quite, quite turn quite quite for a second. Well, no we can 't possibly put it through all of our pipelines, you know streets would blow up and houses would would, would, would melt, and you know everyone 's faces would disappear and all this stuff of thing. so but you still seem to be um, yeah I am. Like, you know, you're, an, you're you're an engineer in the background um, how are you how are you so positive
1: if I think through how the invisible hand will take us like very far down in the future right what 's going to be the the energy system so we are going to have a range of renewable generation, generation capacity, which include possibly all source of renewables, wind and solar of course at, at the front of it, but geothermal and then hydroelectricity, and potentially tidal energy. So, think about all natural phenomena, and what actually you can harness from that. That to be source of electricity that will create like the electrons, the green electrons that actually will power society, right? now. You said Hydrogen is difficult to store and transport, electricity as well. And of course, you can transport electricity on cables, but you cannot cable everywhere. And there's a cost as well linked to that. So, if you think about what happened with the LNG market, which was a way to move on and create efficiency by moving like cheaper source of gas, to place where gas simply does exist, not accessible or it's too expensive, that to create a global market, right? So it's a long it's a long answer, but there is a scenario in future where we're gonna have like a full integrated one global market where we we'll have like renewable energy generation across the globe, and a way to link different markets that is to move either when possible via cables or interconnectors, when not possible via another mean. And hydrogen, my bet, will be that medium of transport energy. When you have excess energy to produce hydrogen, because the main problem of hydrogen today is that we don't have enough, enough renewable energy, period. And converting renewable energy into hydrogen is a process that actually has efficiency losses, right? And I get that, but there are applications for which hydrogen anyway is already needed. So industrial applications, for example, fertilizers and refineries. So that's an immediate gain because it's actually needed and it's very carbon intensive. So we need to fix that. So there is a big potential for green hydrogen there, but I think in a very far future, there will be an even bigger potential. Now, how far is this future? That's a big question and people are making their bets. I would say, I think it's a future that's much closer than people believe. Because as it happened for solar and wind, um, I believe costs will go down for electrolyzers. And I'll give one final example, which perhaps hydrogen is a fundamental feedstock for synthesizing longer chain molecules for sustainable aviation fuels. So there is, as of today, no other way to produce like sustainable aviation fuels from building blocks that doesn't use hydrogen. So only in that, given the demand of the aviation industry, would have a huge potential for hydrogen. Again, there are applications and applications. I think some, I agree, uh, hard to see, perhaps in a very far future, but I guess some others uh, I would be more possible. But yeah, I'm, I'm a believer that, in a sense, the whole set of solutions should not be ruled out before being tested. Mm-hmm including hydrogen, and I think there will be a space, at least in the near term, for almost everything.
0: Now, you are a big believer in social impact and how that renewables can also create positive impacts on society. Um, Could you kind of explain a little bit about your, your thinking behind that and how renewables can assist on the ground?
1: People in Europe and in developed countries sometimes forget that we still have a major issue as society globally of energy poverty. We have communities, in particular, very large communities in Africa, India, for example, which still don't have access to the grid or to, to energy period. And uh, that is, it's terrible. And it's a problem that is very hard to, to fix by creating like The infrastructure as we know it, expanding the grid is expensive. It's not necessarily economically viable. And then one could say a government should just pay for it. But of course, government resources are finite. So if you're actually paying for some of this, then perhaps you're not paying for for hospitals or schools. I think for places such as these, Renewables can be a brilliant way to create like, energy justice because you can provide decentralized energy generation solutions that then would not rely on the grid. There are a, a number of uh, companies, investors, government entities, and multinationals, uh, cross-government organizations, looking into projects that they can enable some of these these are projects that typically anyways, they're not targeting very immense returns, but these are projects that actually can cause a major social impact and bring several people out of the energy poverty. So yeah, there is a, a big, big potential for renewables. This is solar in particular, when You want to look at these porous areas, great solar potential, but and it's honestly all sorts of, of, of energy. Biogas has been one that's been quite looked at especially because these porous communities, they have a lot of agriculture produce and biomass, and then you have like some organic feedstock for, for, for biogas that then is obviously carbon neutral. Hmm. Um, yeah, but long story short, great potential and great way to, I would say, do things right the first time, in a sense, because when you create the grid as we know it, perfect solution for Europe. Now think about... Our communities in Brazil, in the Amazon forest, how are we going to get an electricity cable there? <laughs> Not easy.
0: Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, and this is something that isn't really part of the discussion in a, in a European context. Um, I imagine kind of far, far more so in, in Brazil and seemingly more so in Canada as well. You know, there's an awful lot more kind of conversations around societal impacts of, of of renewables. Um, Outside of Europe, do you see investors also looking at societal impact and trying to monitor it and um, understand what what the impact will be? I don't, I don't, I don't see, see that happening in Europe. But it would be interesting to know whether, say, in, in Canada or Brazil, that's something that, that's a, that's a metric that's that investors do look at.
1: People look at this. Clearly, if these are European or North American investors looking into investing in emerging markets, then that's a consideration. And I've got some cases within my clients in which people ask the, the right questions, at least let's put it this way. Obviously, these elements get into the whole set of variables that investors take into account in, in, in to make decisions may sometimes ought to be the most determining factor, but certainly take into account. When you look into local investors, I would say to a lesser extent, but it's getting stronger as well. People understand especially when you say social is also a very broad type of, 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 of universe of things you should and need to be doing. But when you talk for example about inclusion or gender equality, These topics are becoming mainstream in emerging markets as well. In Brazil, for sure, uh, I I can say. So yes, that's been taken into account. Is this driving massive waves of change in the way people make investments? Not yet, but again, uh, I would say change needs to start somewhere. That may be a long process, but the process, from my interfaces and feedback I get from the ground. That process has started. Okay, very good. Which is kind of
0: leads us neatly along to uh, kind of the kind of concluding questions. (laughs) uh, The the first off would be, what is your um, hope for the the future of the industry and the sectors that you're in? Where would you like to see your industry and your sectors in ten years?
1: Well, um, I've been surprised more than once, people talk a lot about the speed of change, that's too slow. But actually being in the industry, I've been positively surprised sometimes by how quickly mindsets have changed, even if that didn't result yet in the type of action people would expect. But again, I think the foundation is laid for an acceleration of the good actions that some are already taken. So I would hope that in 10 years, if you think first developed markets, would have renewables and other energy transition technologies established as mainstream, as an investable class that not only the most risk takers can bet on, but that everyone can bet on, including the most conservative investors, including banks, because that would create that, like, positive virtual cycle, the circle that will enable like renewables to accelerate it even further with the bottleneck than the capital constraint. Right? So, in Europe, the United States, Canada, I would hope and expect to have renewables as completely mainstream, well understood, low cost base, as well as other re- uh, energy transition technologies and infrastructure, EV charging points, well established and widespread overall, battery manufacturers uh, cooperating in these countries and actually providing essential services to the grid. I would expect like biogas, biofuels should be used for cleaning marine and aviation, and all of these mainstream applications rather than like some highly speculative something that we are going to implement in the future. For emerging markets, I think my hope is that the mindset that's already existing in Europe and that has created the foundation for that expectation that by 2030, to 2035, that that mindset had, gets more ingrained in emerging markets. I would say people focus on the most immediate problems and sometimes it's just like to get a plate of food and therefore it's hard to actually think about climate as like your first preoccupation. Hopefully that will change by 2030, 2035 Enabling then a second wave to come, like repeating that first wave that will have happened by then in Europe and North America, but to happen in emerging markets. And if that all actually stacks up, maybe we could be on track for a two-degree scenario. Hopefully. Hopefully. Difficult, but I like to be positive. (laughs)
0: And last question: what, In that, in that, that really quite optimistic future uh, you've been, uh, you've been, 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 painting there. Um, what's the role of investment banking to, to help us get there?
1: Well, um, as I say, there are a number of bottlenecks. There is the regulatory bottleneck we talked a lot about. There is a technology bottleneck, which needs to improve so that process can become more economical but there is also the capital availability bottleneck i think banks and investment banking in particular will play a very essential role in bringing in the capital that's badly needed for some of these projects to move ahead and bringing capital can be as a facilitator as an agent as a lender or as a structurer that can create like instruments and ways to somehow attract pockets of capital that otherwise would not be have have been available to that given project without the banking industry i'm afraid to say it would be very very hard if not impossible for us to achieve like the goals that society actually have set themselves well thank you so much that was nice. big (laughs) pleasure chris
0: thank you very much for joining us on that conversation Hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, If you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.